This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. You guys, it happened again. We got that awesome You're Hired message from a sponsor on Podcorn. And our fellow podcasters could very well get that message too. But how? Well, podcasters can sign up on Podcorn through the link in our show notes to connect to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities. And we would know since we've recently been one of those brands. That's right. We ran our own campaign on Podcorn and sponsored a bunch of other podcasts where they host read ads for us. And what happened after that? Um, I got hooked on looking at our download numbers is what happened because they just keep getting better and better. Yeah. So podcasters, check out the link in our show notes and start browsing sponsorship opportunities now. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. Hey, it's Old Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. And we are here with your historical true crime of the week, going back in time, turning on our time machine. And uh, before we get started, of course, don't forget about our Patreon. Things are really hopping over there. We're having a great time telling each other uh, smaller stories that don't really suit a regular episode, but you get them weekly. And then we have our monthly bonus episodes that are full length and we do something a little special each time we do something a little different from what we normally do so you can find that on patreon.com slash old timey crimey you get all of that plus all of our back catalog over there like so many hours of content so much you can binge for just five dollars a month so go give it a try see if you like it if you don't no harm no foul we won't blame you we will still Love you. I'll so. blame you, and I will not love you anymore. Okay, I shouldn't use the royal we, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I will not love you. I'll still love you, and aren't I the only one who matters? I mean, come on, let's be honest. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> no one jumped in, did they? Did they, I was trying to make how, up for the complete lack of care on the how, yours part. <laughs> how does that make you feel? <laughs> I hope it makes oh you feel God. small. <laughs> I feel tiny. There. <laughs> I tied it all together, how we do the t- old tiny crimeys over there, and now I feel tiny, and now I'm going to have therapy this week. Yay! You hear that? You hear that? That's the hundreds of migraine pills I'm going to be taking because of this. <laughs> what? Because of what? <laughs> you doing puns. <laughs> it wasn't a pun. You were the one who said, don't you feel small or tiny? And then you did the voice. You opened the door. I just walked through it. It's you, not my fault. You were bo- you only embraced the darkness. I was born in it. Exactly. <laughs> the Thank streets you. will run red with razzle-dazzle. <laughs> so we are talking about the Osage Indian murders this week. It was called the Reign of Terror. So... To start with a little background history, in the 1870s, the Osage were living in Kansas, 
and they were forced out of their territory. And it really sources very wildly, you know that. There's one story that says they were forced onto a particular area for reservation in, you know, in what would eventually become Oklahoma. And there's another story that says an Osage chief was like, here's this really rocky territory. Nobody will bother us. The white man has no reason to come here. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we can stop this before it starts, essentially. So this, like I said, eventually becomes Oklahoma. And it's called lands that, quote, in those days regarded as the most worthless lands in the nation, marked principally by sage, brush, and cactus, end quote. But that was not actually the case. In the 1890s, just like a couple decades after they moved there or were forced there, petroleum development began. And while it was kind of slow, it was a little bit of a trickle at first, eventually it really bore fruit. By 1907, more than 5 million barrels were being produced. And of course, we get to take oil from brown people and we don't even have to leave the country. Right? (laughs) So, and yeah, the prospectors wanted that oil. They did have to pay for it. They'd find a way around that. Don't worry. There were leases owned by, not that I said, don't worry. Like you would be worried that the white man would be screwed out of money. (laughs) Right. Sarcasm, sarcasm. So, Uh, There were leases owned by the Osage as well as royalties. And so that money starts being distributed to the Osage people starting in the early 1900s. And like I said, it was a trickle at first, but that slowly turned into a freaking waterfall. So 1923, for example, oil-related activities brought in over $30 million for the tribe. And that was in those days money. That's $438 million today. Damn. And there, there were, there were I, I loved it. During the peak of this, there were photos I found online as I was doing the social media of some Osage women in, in that period of time just dressed to the goddamn nines because their pockets were fat with cash. Yes, they were. They The tribe had the subsurface mineral rights. And so tribe members got royalties and each of these, these royalties per person was called a head right. A head right could not be sold or bought. The, the Osage as a collective controlled the head rights. So the owner of each head right gets their share of money from royalties and leases and all of that. It's essentially the same deal that they have with the casinos today. Yeah, yeah. It really seems to be very, very similar and the thing was, is that these head rights were transferable upon death. And so when someone who owned a head right died, it would go to their heir. But at the time, the heir didn't have to be Osage, setting up a couple of motives here. And you could have more than one head right from a single decedent. So it gets like so if one person inherited a couple of head rights and then that person died and you were their heir, you would get all, all of those head rights. It's really a system that is just set up for problems. But in 1926, it's a system rife for murder. 
Yes, exactly. Uh, the average Osage family in 1926, a family of five, got about $65,000 per year, which is close to $1 million today. And all told, by 1939, more than 100 million in royalties and bonuses had gone to Osage individuals. So, of course, like we said, just ready to get some people knocked off. This this drew in some of the criminal element. Now, it wasn't, you know, just people coming to murder. Actually, in the 1920s, uh, not on purpose, I don't think, but Osage County ended up kind of hosting a... a convention of robbers you know people who rob banks people who rob trains if you rob things come and we'll have a little convention i i don't know what kind of uh keynote speech that entails probably just the word stick them up <laughs> yes. yes exactly Thank, stick them up give me your money don't make me kill you thank you for coming to my ted talk <laughs> See, I, I picture it like go fish where they're all trying to pick who they're gonna go after Yeah, right. So at that point in time, the Osage were the richest people per capita in the world. And this wasn't a secret. The world knew it. The newspapers and magazines talked about it. This was fairly common knowledge. So this is from the Fort Worth Record Telegram, uh, an article about all this money coming in. Being an Osage Indian is some experience, financially speaking, and there is a lot of folks who would like to try it a while. Is the days of real sports so far as the tribe is concerned? I want to murder that writer. They're probably already dead, but uh, that's just horrible, horrible sentence construction and just all kinds of problems. We We can can go pee on their grave. We can dig them up and desecrate the corpse. Amber, come on. Scott's much more ambitious than you are, Amber. (laughs) I'm willing to put in the work, and and, uh, I'm even going to buy the shovels. (laughs) Excellent. After the show, let's go find that grave and get to work. Some people called the Osage (sighs) red millionaires. You know what? If you're paying me that much money, go ahead. (laughs) Go ahead. I'm fine with it. Whatever. The problem comes in when stuff like that uh, all tends to lend towards that dehumanization of the Osage as a people that let people think that killing them was no big deal. That's where the problem comes in. So you can say, oh, you can call me anything you want, but when it, it slowly leads to people seeing them as less than human... And being like, oh, it doesn't matter if we, you know, bump a few off. No big deal. And we get some money out of it. That's, I mean, obviously, when murder starts getting involved, that's where it becomes an issue. (laughs) Yeah, I will give you that. Whenever murder is involved, (laughs) it becomes an issue. Somebody copyright (laughs) that. Put that on a (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. Trademarked, bitch. So (laughs) the papers liked to kind of take all the stereotypes of Native Americans and fold them into these tales of just outrageous wealth. Like, okay, you have a campfire and, and, you know, instead of everybody coming on their horses or whatever, they all drive their fancy cars to it, which maybe they did, but we don't need to make it like funny, I guess. I don't know. So, and then stuff like a sentence in a Harper's monthly article the Osage Indians are becoming so rich that something will have to be done about it. 
We can't Ooh. have brown people having all this money. Right? So they did do something about it. The government put in place white guardians who would control the spending of individual Osage people, but only for the full-blooded Osage. So if you're full-blooded Osage and you got all this money, you need to be kept an eye on and you need to be told what to do. And so we so, would right, Britney Spears on their ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Britney Spears' dad must have been involved here somewhere. I can just smell it. So if yeah, they've got just a drop of white blood, they'll be fine. Exactly. That's white. the concept. It's like racism folded into racism. White blood is so pure, it's cleansing. It's like the blood of Christ, that Middle Eastern guy. White white blood makes you financially responsible, as we can can see from extensive poverty. All the fucking people at the local convenience store scratching lottery tickets. Not a <laughs> black one amongst them. <laughs> is that racist? Maybe, but get the fuck out of the way and let me buy my Major Melon Mountain Dew Zero. There's nothing better than standing in line at the convenience store and having hearing the people ahead of you who are scratching off their tickets only to go buy more tickets when they lose. Talk about how if they won, they would pay off all their debts. It just and you you go up to the fucking counter and there's silver wax everywhere and it's just God, they say there's not a tax on stupid. Christy, Amber, there's a fucking tax on stupid. It's called the lottery. I used to work the day shift at a, a, a dive bar, and there was a grocery store in that same plaza and, and also like a, a smoke shop. In both of those places, you could buy lottery tickets. So, yeah, I had people who would come in, drink their beer while they scratched their tickets off, like 20 tickets, finish their beer, go, you know, either turn them in and get whatever paltry money they'd won or... Just go and buy more, come back, have another beer. It was like habit stuck, stacked on top of habit. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Fucking hell. And in this system of guardianship over the Osage, every single thing that they bought had to be approved. And as soon as this starts, there is corruption. The guardians had this whole system that they set up where the Osage had to buy directly from them and they jacked up the price. Uh, another thing they like to do is they like to say, oh, you can only buy from these businesses or you can only get, you know, work with these banks. And of course, of course, there were kickbacks involved there or they would just outright just steal the money. Just boom, steal it and run. A total of eight million dollars was stolen by the Osage uh, from not by stolen from the Osage by the Guardians. That's one hundred and twenty two million dollars today. God damn. But some people, just stealing isn't enough. Some people really needed to get schemy about it. And so if you wanted to get schemy about it, murder was an option. There were some people who would marry an Osage, generally a woman, and then kill them. And then, of course, by marrying them, they had become the heir. And so they could inherit uh, not to be skeevy, not to be super skeevy here. I was looking up some of the Osage women, and we're not talking some unattractive women. Like these were some kind of hot women. Why would you? Why would you go into that and murder whenever you can have the money and a hot wife? I I, I don't know honestly. I don't know if maybe the 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 marriage, you know, 
possibly it was people wanting to do this multiple times. You know, the greed starts to factor in and, and you're like, well, if I if I kill her, I can have all of her money and then I can marry another Osage woman and then I can kill her and have all of her money. And but, so on well, and so forth. And at the root of it, too, a lot of these people are racist. So they yes. don't actually want to be with a woman that has a different color of skin as them. They just wanted her money. So they marry her. They take her. They, they get, kill her and take her money. And it was never about love, even if they're attractive to us. To them, those people mm. so full of hate, it's it's disgusting and vile. Yeah, to them, the the, the person they were marrying was subhuman. So, and that also gave them the, the the psychological ability to just you know kill them and not care about it. <laughs> so, pretty pretty rotten. An Osage historian named Lewis Burns said, "Quote: I don't know of a single Osage family that didn't lose at least one family member because of head rights." Good God. Right? It's it's just awful. So then we get into the story of Molly Kyle. So uh, she was she would become Molly Burkhart, but she was born in 1885, full-blooded Osage. She had three sisters. And so she had enough money from her head right. She kind of was born and came about just at just the right time to be able to take, you know, like get this money and, and live her life that way. She built a nice house in gray horse with what, which was an Osage settlement town. She had servants and, you know, no, there was nice cars and all that stuff. And, uh, uh Ernest Burkhart, he came from Texas around age. He was 19 and his uncle lived in the area. His uncle's name was William K. Hale, W.K. Hale, Bill Hale, whatever. So Hale was a cattleman and businessman, and he really thought a lot of himself to the extent that he called himself King of the Osage Hills. Oh, well, my heavens, I'm Prince of the Spoiled Potato Salad. <laughs> He was uh, quite wealthy. Everybody knew him. He even acted as deputy sheriff in the town of Fairfax, which was just up the road from Gray Horse. So when Ernest Burkhart came to town, he basically started work as an errand boy for Hale, and he would also extend his services to some of the locals. And one day he acted as chauffeur for Molly. They start up a romance, and he he actually did learn the Osage language so that he could communicate with her that way. She did know some pretty decent English, but uh, you know, like, I guess he decided he wanted a, another method to communicate with her. And she had diabetes; he helped her out with that. So, in 1917, the two married. They had a daughter and a son. They were living in Molly's house. Also living there was Molly's mother, Lizzie. She was widowed, and so they would take care of her as well. The year after the wedding, one of Molly's sisters died of what they called a wasting disease. But keep keep that in your head. Put a put a little pin in that. It it wasn't tuberculosis, was it? I don't I don't think so. Nothing's proven, but it doesn't seem like likely. Hmm. In May 1921, Molly is having uh like a luncheon for some some local ladies and her sister, Anna Brown, who is 36, uh, only a year older than Molly, 
is over at the house. She's supposed to be helping out, but it seems like she's been, she's just at fresh out of a divorce and she's been drinking a lot. And so she's drinking a lot that day. She's flirting with Ernest's younger brother, Brian Harkart, Burkhart, sorry. And she also seems to kind of make a scene at this event by arguing with, uh, you know, pretty much everyone she could pick a fight with. She was, she was just in a cantankerous mood and we've all been there. Yeah. I'm, I'm there us, now. I was, I was going to say, some of us today. <laughs> so. Oh, fuck the both of you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I meant me, but okay. <laughs> like, I thought she meant me, honestly. So. <laughs> I think that really says something about us that we just assumed it was all ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. That, that speaks so many volumes. Walk into Pennsylvania. I haven't seen the sun in 42 days. Yeah, right? Oh my gosh. Well, soon, guys. Soon. So, after this luncheon, Brian volunteers to take Anna home, and later he will say that he dropped her off around 4.30 or 5. But after they leave, at least at the moment, no one comes forward to say that they had seen her. And by day three of her being missing, there's some serious concerns. I mean, she would be out... She was she was going out and partying it up like like you do after, you know, a relationship goes bad. And so she, she was out with her friends all night sometimes. But three days was that was out of the ordinary. That was something to to worry about. And so she is missing. Molly starts to be concerned. And about a week or so after she's last seen, an oil worker finds a body. Not Anna's. It is another Osage Indian named Charles Whitehorn. He had gone missing a week before Anna had disappeared. According to the FBI's files on the case, he was young, married, no known children, or sorry, no children and no known enemies. Quote, directly from the FBI's vault, quite wealthy and did indulge in rather frequent drunken sprees and parties with women, which sounds like a good time. Really? Yeah. That's, that's yeah. <laughs> He's young and rich. Yeah. And he had been shot twice between the eyes. They were able to identify him pretty quickly because he actually had a letter in his pocket. So they didn't have to, you know, spend time trying to have people come in and identify the body or get the word out, anything like that. Then they find Anna. It's actually, of course, a teenage boy who is hunting with his father. How many teenage boys in the course of this podcast have we found out about or younger? Well, I mean, that- it makes it kind of makes sense because I think of myself as a teenager. I used to climb up and down hills. I used to go off the path all the time. And now I'm afraid to go in the woods because I'm afraid my knees are going to explode. So, yeah, I can I can understand why it's always a teenage boy. Or, or at least a young person. Like in the, in these days, I don't think girls were really allowed to do that. But I know when I was young, I was the off the path kid that I was wandering, and I'm sad that I've never found a body. I am shocked that in all my time wandering the woods growing up, I didn't find a body. I was worried one time I was going to become that dead body. Uh, because I was wandering, just taking a walk through the, the very thick woods behind our house, and I started hearing gunshots, and it was not uh, any sort of hunting season, I don't believe. 
And so, yeah, I was basically just like running frantically through the woods, uh, just trying to get away from the sound of the gunshots and, and was was pretty happy when I came uh, out of the woods, got, got completely lost, came out of the woods like a mile from my house. But I was like, that's fine. I'm out of the woods. I'm away from the gunshots. It's OK. <laughs> I, I didn't find my first body until I was 19. And it was an extremely traumatizing experience. It was. Uh, yeah, I just I, I was driving my car. And I thought, oh, this is cool. Here's this little road I never went down before. And uh, yeah, I, I saw a car parked along to the side and it had tinted windows. And I just thought it was weird that a car was there. And you could tell it hadn't been there long. It wasn't like rusting apart or anything. So I went to tap on the window to see if anybody was inside. And all the flies that were inside went away from the window and started swarming inside. And there was a body sitting in the front seat. Ugh. It was, horrifying. Yeah, yeah. It's only recently that I can tell the story without crying. Yeah, that's that's really got to do something to your psyche. It, you know, thirty years, you. I'm okay now. Yeah. So this this teenage boy finds Anna in a ravine. She has a gunshot to the back of her head, and by this point, the decomposition was so bad that they had to identify her by the the blanket she was wearing and her gold fillings. That was the method they had to use. Pretty rough. There was no exit wound, but also the autopsy found no bullet in her skull. There was an entrance wound for a bullet, but uh, there, there's questions that get raised later because of that. And they actually, according to, I only found one article that mentioned the cause of death, but it was ruled alcohol poisoning. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely not. Yeah, that's that's a whole new level of, of drinking when you, you manage to drink yourself into a bullet in the head. Do they just dip the bullet in whiskey? <laughs> there you go. That's the answer. We've solved the mystery. Now, these couple of deaths, various people related to the two victims over the next couple of years, they try to get private investigators to look into them. You do have several working the cases over the next uh, little while. And Molly also goes to William Hale, her husband's uncle. He's, he's known to be a really good ally to the Osage. He was a philanthropist. He, um, he, he would help out various causes, schools, churches, etc. And he said, of course, you know, Anna was a good friend of mine. Of course I'll help. Why wouldn't I? And so he's, you know, going to put some of his money and resources into this, but not not very long at all after they find Anna, Molly's mom, Lizzie, she was 63. She started getting very sick and was just kind of wasting away. And they attributed it to another wasting disease. They said it was tuberculosis. And but she within two months of Anna's death, she passed away in July 1921. Now, the thing you have to consider with all these deaths is what happens to the headrights. Well, Lizzie had, when she passed, she had four headrights. Her own, that of her deceased husband. Uh, she had received Anna's headright when Anna passed. And then also the other daughter who had died in 1918. And each of those four headrights was worth about $12,000. They, a nice little chunk of change. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. You add that up, and and that'll that'll buy us some nice shit. Uh, if if you haven't be full blooded, you won't be able to get as nice of shit because the the, the white man is telling you what to buy and overcharging you. Uh, We're just stealing it. Uh, good thing I'm not full blooded Native American then, because uh, I can afford <laughs> Amazon Prime for another year now. <laughs> So at some point during this process, they're, they're trying to figure out what's happening, and they get this man named Barney McBride. He was an, an oil man who was known in the area. They recruit his help. And so he's going to D.C. to try to get things moving. And when he's there, when he arrives, he gets a telegram warning him to be careful. And then just a couple hours later, he's kidnapped beaten, stabbed 20 times, and was found naked in a culvert. Well, all those things sound good except for the stabbing. <laughs> I mean, except for the stabbing, that's just a Friday night, you know? Yeah. I mean, beating, you know, that's that can be taken one of two ways. Of course. In January 1923, another murder happened. Henry Roan, he was 42, he was an, an Osage man. He was found in his car with a gunshot to the back of his head. He was Lizzie's nephew, so Molly's cousin. And for some reason, even though he's 42, and this is, uh, I think, some more of this dehumanizing and inf infantil I can't say this word, infantilization. There we go. I got it out somehow. Uh, referred to him as an Osage Indian boy. He's 26, right? He's 42. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's like double. Yeah, it's it's a strange thing, I think. But he was he was married, he had two kids, and yet his life insurance policy for $25,000, that's $380,000 in today's money, was uh was going to go to William K Hale, who was the beneficiary. Mhm. Yeah. And, and Hale, he had his own theory, of course. He was like, I think that uh, Henry Roan's wife's lover did it to get him out of the way, of course. Now, fear is really spreading. These aren't the only murders that are happening. These are just the ones that we know about because the, the FBI, well, what would eventually become the FBI, investigated them. And was able to, you know, find some more information. But there are plenty others that happened. This, this is not just, you know, a murder here, a murder there. This was uh, several years of just murder, 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 murder. And so fear is really spreading. And this is starting to become what's called the Osage Reign of Terror. People who tried to solve the murders would get killed. People were buying dogs to guard their houses. They were hanging up lights around outside the house, you know, you got to remember this was the twenties. They didn't really have, you know, motion activated floodlights that would actually setting these lights up would probably be a bit of a, a process and an ordeal. And so they're, you know, trying to do that to keep themselves safe. They're keeping their kids inside. And that's if they're not just heading the hell out and moving to California, there was a sort of a diaspora that happened during this period of time, just because of the sheer fear in the community. So March 1923, another of Molly's sisters, Rita Smith, she's 35 at the time, she moves into a new house. She's, it's not very far from Molly at all. 
with her husband, Bill. He is 48. And they also had their servant, Nellie Brookshire. She's 25. And the, the reason they moved was because of their fear of all of this murdering. They had lived out in the country prior to this. And they were like, we need to be out in, in town around people and, and be, to be able to feel more secure. So they bought this house. It was $7,500. And that is in today's money, $109,000. The local paper called it one of the larger and more pretentious residences in town, which why don't you be a little more snooty? And the very first night in this house, there's a massive explosion. It actually woke Molly up around 3 a.m. She got up, looked out the window, and just saw a giant explosion happening where her sister's house was. Oh, no. That's got to be fucking pit of the stomach, soul-wrenching. And I mean, when she's already lost so many members of her family, and then, you know, especially having the, the new reassurance of, well, my other sister, my one remaining sister, will be in town, and we can be close to each other, and, and you know, keep an eye out... And then to have it happen, that that's just, it's just got to really just destroy you. Yeah. So Rita Smith and Nellie Brookshire were killed almost instantly. Bill was severely injured. Uh, he languished for about four days before he died. He was able to talk before he died. One of the things he said was, they got Rita and now it looks as though they got me. Now, the victims' bodies were found several hundred yards away from the, the house. Um, there was a block of houses that was damaged. Windows were broken for several blocks. Heat and shock from the blast burned paint off the nearby houses. Holy shit. Yes. So this had been a bomb that was planted in the garage under the house and then detonated. Uh, there was some speculation, although I don't know if it was ever confirmed that this was the specific uh, makeup of the bomb, but there was somewhere recently had had a theft of 10 to 12 quarts of uh, nitroglycerin. So that yeah. not only, not only is that like freaking like explosive, but imagine the danger in transporting the nitroglycerin there. Yeah, that stuff's really volatile, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's... The, the production of it is frightening. The transportation of it is frightening. There's, there's so many things that can go wrong. So if somebody blows you up with nitro, somebody really wanted you dead. You know what, though? Like, I'm almost a little disappointed that they didn't get blown up on the way. Oh, I'm super like, disappointed that they didn't get blown up on the way. Yeah. <laughs> then somebody else maybe might have lived. Now, the Smiths, they did have some issues with the two Burkhart men, uh, Ernest and Brian, and William Hale, and actually said that they thought Hale and Ernest Burkhart had conspired to kill Anna Brown so that, you know, Burkhart's wife, Molly, would inherit her property. They were pretty outspoken about this, and they were trying very hard to push for an investigation of the Burkharts and Hale. And actually, in addition to that, Bill Smith had a suit 
that he had filed against Hale that was still going on at the time of his death that said Hale owed him $6,000. That would be $92,000 today. And he filed the suit because Hale said, no, I don't. I don't know you anything. That reminds me, my my boss has some paperwork that says I owe him some money that I found today that I could just get rid of. No, I don't. (laughs) There you go. Glad to solve all your problems, Scott. Editing this out. (laughs) (laughs) Delete or trash, whatever. Shouldn't have had me file shit. (laughs) (laughs) Learn your lesson, damn it. Mm -hmm. There was some dispute over the will there was actually a, a young woman who came in and insisted that she was uh, Bill Smith's daughter. But in the end, Molly and Ernest Burkhart got Rita's head rights. And because uh, Anna's and Lizzie's had gone to Rita, they got those as well. And so that is all together. Let's count Lizzie's head rights, Lizzie's husband's head rights. Three of her daughters that had died in the past five years. So five head rights all together. And of course, Molly still had her own. So that's about, if it was around 12000 per head right, that's $72,000 or about $1.1 million per year in today's dollars. Now... All these private investigators over the years, they they tried calling them in. Generally, nothing came of that. They tried offering rewards for information. Nothing came of that. Uh, The Oklahoma governor's state investigator, who was a former PI, was sent in. And all he ended up doing was committing a a, a murder of his own that wasn't even related to head rights or anything. It was just, you know, I I guess he felt like murdering. I don't know. For fun. Just for fun. (laughs) (laughs) even in trying to solve the problem people are dying becomes pretty clear that there is a conspiracy here so after the explosion especially the Osage Indian Council was like "All right, we need to figure this out so they look to the government for help Uh, and so it's not and it's not just Molly's family here that is trying to get some action here as far as a, an investigation is concerned, it's also the families and, and friends of Joe Greyhorse, William's stepson, Anna Sanford, and others who had been murdered in the past couple years. So then there was an attorney uh, named, do you guys have, is it, I feel like I mistyped W.W. Vaughn, but I feel like it might be W.V. Vaughn. Let me check my notes here. I have William Watkins Vaughn. Okay, I didn't mistype. Thank you. Good. So William Watkins Vaughn, or W.W. Vaughn, he was a father of 10. Yeah! The sperm pump is working just fine. Thank you. That man knows how to get it, apparently. And Uh seven of my kids look like my best friend. (laughs) Oh, no. Now, he was supposed to know some shit about what was going down he had information he had talked to people he had he had gotten you know statements and compiled all this information and so he went to talk to a a man who was dying and get some information from him he took the train talked to him and then on the way back uh he just wasn't on the train and later he was found uh to have been tossed off the train and stripped naked 
They really like stripping people, don't they? Right? For shame. <laughs> you only get to strip yourself. So he had had all of his evidence compiled in a safe at his house. And his wife knew about this. So after he died, his wife's like, I should go get that information and make sure it's safe in the safe. But it wasn't because the safe was empty. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, 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 indeed. This episode is sponsored by the Smoking With Podcast. Over on the Smoking With Podcast, Josh and Garrett are having intelligent, thought-provoking, and sometimes downright philosophical conversations about all aspects of the cannabis industry. Josh and Garrett talk about developments in the industry, the latest cannabis news, and even try out samples on the air so you can hear their in-the-moment experiences. You can also find out the latest cannabis news about everything from cultivation to bud tending. And you just overall get that wonderful feeling of hanging out with friends. Friends with experience in the cannabis industry and the passion to match. Smoking With manages to be both fun and enlightening. So download the Smoking With podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In 1924, C.K. Templeton gets elected county attorney of Osage County, and one of his platforms is he's going to figure all of this out. The Tulsa World called it, quote, an orgy of deep-laid plotting, which ultimately whipped out all but one member of a wealthy Osage family, brought death to a number of other people, and set the Osages wondering what secret enemy within the county might be seeking the vast wealth which has flowed to all members of the Osage Nation. Whoever wrote that is really sexually repressed. Whip out, orgy, I caught that. Deep laid. <laughs> yeah, like every other word was like, I'm so horny. Like, yeah, whoever, they need they need to at least double click their mouse before writing. <laughs> yeah, right. Honey, could you come look at this and make sure I didn't rape something? Yeah. Now, in the process of, you know, everybody's, of course, always talking about this and investigating, a couple names keep popping up. William Hale, Ernest Burkhart, and a man named John Ramsey. Now, as far as Hale's connection to the murders, a lot of people had been whispering his name pretty much since the beginning. So this gets the attention of the U.S. Bureau of Investigation, which would later become the FBI. And the new director was one J. Edgar Hoover. And he was just itching to solve some shit. Also, mainly because the Bureau's reputation was not really great. They kept on really just, just fucking things up. I love his heels. Yes, they're... You know, not very many people can pull off a kitten heel and have it accentuate the calves quite so just delightfully. I'll tell you what, <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover, hell of a dancer, a little bit of a butterface. <laughs> a little bit. So there was, you know, that was part of the reason that they, they needed some essentially like the success in good PR. And also they didn't really have a whole lot of jurisdiction. There weren't a whole lot of cases they could go after, but cases on Native American reservations, 
they could do. And so they did. They started specifically with the Roan murder, which, you know, it happened on reservation land. So thus they could get involved. And so they get in. Reservation land, by the way, sounds like the most depressing theme park ever. (laughs) It is. It's a very sad one. Everybody get on the roller coaster of tears. Make sure to pull that smallpox blanket tight up around your chest. And it's built by the white man. Yeah, yeah. So, Hoover gets in a man named Tom White. He, I was just said white man and then Tom White. It was yes. non-intentional. Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. didn't, didn't do that on purpose. He was the head of the Houston Bureau office. And so he actually moves out to Oklahoma City, brings his family with him to head up the office there. He had kind of the the lawman thing in his blood. He was the son of a frontier sheriff. Yeehaw. The thing was, Hoover really liked to recruit college-educated agents. It was a little bit of a frat bro environment. and But that's not what's needed here. What's needed is some undercover agents who can really get into the community and get information because no one wants to talk. And so they get uh, an insurance, a, a former insurance salesman, uh, and they bring him in. And they're like, "We don't really want you to go method. We just want you to go back in time. Pretend you're an insurance agent." Okay, boom, done. And they have uh, somebody pretending they're a cattle buyer, and you know, an oil prospector, and they even get one Native American uh, to act as a, an agent. Uh, some sources say herbal doctor, and some sources say medicine man. I don't know. <laughs> hmm. It feels it, icky, doesn't it? It it feels icky. Yes, I don't like saying it, but it could be a. I, let's, let's go say herbal it, doctor. Let's say shaman. No, that's even worse. You think shaman's <laughs> worse? I think shaman's respectful. I, I feel like shaman is appropriating an entirely in another culture and putting it on top of the Native Americans. It's it's a racist <laughs> lasagna. Yes, it is. It is a racist lasagna. Oh God, that can't be the episode subtitle, but it feels like it has to be. Herbalist, herbalist, sure, an herbalist. It feels like I guess I should uh, kind of explain the the ickiness feeling. It feels like one of those things that you're not sure if it became a racist stereotype because people made it one, or if it was you know and made it one in a mocking way, or if it was an actual you know, thing and still is perhaps in, in American Indian tribes. And then people took it and made it into a stereotype in a mocking way. I, I I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay because, you know, my great grandmother was full blooded native American. I mean, I'm going to say shaman. I'm allowed to shut up. Let me have this. Why do I have to let you have things? Right. (laughs) Because I feel, as a man in today's society, I need to ask your permission, Christy. <laughs> I'm sensitive. Well, good. <laughs> Things are starting to be as they should be. Okay, no, so back, back to our undercover agents. Yes. <laughs> okay, so. so, yes, we have these undercover agents. Because, yeah, the thing is, is that... Nobody wants to talk. If, if, if it's not that they're scared, 
it's that they've been paid or that they've become, because of all this fear, the, the community has just naturally, as a result, become very insular. And so they don't want to trust outsiders. So you need to get people who can become part of the community and somebody who just, you know, came from Yale and has a New England accent isn't really going to cut it. So they they do try to investigate Charles Whitehorn's murder, but that ends up not really working out. These are some some theories that came out. For, I believe I got these from the, the FBI's vault on the Osage Indian murders, uh, that he had been killed in a drunken fight, that he'd been killed because he'd been messing around with some other guy's wife or daughter, that he'd been killed by his wife, Hattie, because she'd... This one, this one got me. She'd married him while still married to someone else and killed him to keep him from finding out. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. And they, the FBI lasagna. did within this. What? That's a crime lasagna. That's different than That's a racist a... lasagna. Yes. You're really working to give me that subtitle and I appreciate it I'm very much. I'm kind of hungry. <laughs> <laughs> it I helps. really it helps want lasagna. I do really want lasagna. We're actually making lasagna tomorrow. I, we're, but uh, do you like uh, spinach and goat cheese? God, no. You're not making okay, lasagna. You're making a layered lie. No, goat cheese is delicious, and uh, I will I will murder anybody who says otherwise. But I would bring you some if if you liked it. But you don't. No, so I'm good. You don't have. Thank you. <laughs> so thank you. Yes. That is a crime lasagna, but it's a crime lasagna that the FBI, they do debunk all of these things. You know, they just essentially, it seems like what the files want to do is present the theories to get them out of the way so that nobody can bring it, them up, can say, well, what, what if he was killed in a drunken fight? No, we already said he was not. <laughs> so, but the one thing is, Hattie... Charles Whitehorn's wife, she did remarry pretty quickly to a white man named, of course, Leroy Smitherman. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. He did not have a great reputation around town. And the consensus would later be among just general, you know, like people about town that uh, Hattie and Leroy and also, in addition, a boarding house operator all conspired together to murder Whitehorn. Hattie was interviewed by the, uh, the Bureau of Investigation, and she said, quote, if I tell you, you will send me to the electric chair. And yet that murder remained unsolved. <laughs> I was going to say, that kind of sounds like a confession. It's very close. If it's not a confession, I think you can get it to a confession. You can, you can leave. The door has been opened. <laughs> and they just don't look, walk through, apparently. Look, you're going to get the electric chair no matter what. But if you tell us, we promise to wet the sponge so it's quick. <laughs> so how do you want to die? Do you want to die quick and painless or extra crispy? <laughs> Pick one. It all depends on how easy you make this for us. So there is sort of a break in some of the cases here as people start talking a little bit more. An older local woman says, she tells the investigators that she saw Anna the night of her murder in a car with a man 
It was Brian Burkhart. She was sure of it. But it was much later than he said he'd last seen her. Remember, he said he'd last seen her around 4.30 or 5. And this was late at night. More reports start filtering in after this. Sort of the floodgates get opened. Uh, Anna and Brian had been seen uh, in the company of another man around 1 a.m., and someone else reported seeing Brian yelling at Anna to get back in the car around 3 a.m. And Brian Burkhart hadn't gotten home until sunrise. So if he's lying about when he last saw her, there's some unaccounted hours and probably some things that happened during those unaccounted hours. It also comes out that, you know, in... in Contrary to Hale's story, which was as far as the life insurance policy, oh, Roan insisted on making me the beneficiary. Sure. Uh, no. Sure. Yeah, exactly. It, uh, it seemed Hale had it, taken it upon himself to get this policy on Roan and uh, even did a little bit of doctor shopping to do it. And the person... The doctor who helped him out with this was one of the same doctors that performed the autopsy on Anna. Mm -hmm. You know, the one that came out with alcohol poisoning as the uh, cause of death for somebody who was shot in the head. There was no bullet. It was alcohol. Yeah, that missing bullet is also uh, curious. Then they are looking at the Smith's murder. They do get some word about the person who made the bomb, whose name was Asa Kirby. They find out that Asa Kirby is dead and so can't talk. But the thing is, there's questions about how Asa Kirby died. And it seems that he died in the process of trying to rob a jewelry store. However, the owner knew... An what? You said rob a jewelry store. I said tell him to make me a grill. <laughs> so... Sorry. Uh, died trying to rob a jewelry store. The owner knew about this robbery in advance and was ready and then shot Asa Kirby in the commission of this robbery. And in addition to that, it looks like the same person who told Asa Kirby to rob the store told the store owner that Asa Kirby was going to rob it. Which is... Really, I, I guess, a creative way to knock off witnesses if you're doing that. So It really is. I mean, it, it's the easiest way to, to keep your hands clean. That's some diabolical motherfuckery right there. That is some diabolical motherfuckery. And I really like that phrasing. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> I you. need that on a T-shirt that I can't wear in public. You shouldn't wear in public. Yes, those the, are some diabolically filthy words you got there, Scott. Uh, enough, uh, enough alcohol, and you can wear anything in public or nothing. <laughs> if you hadn't said or nothing, I would have. <laughs> so, these investigations are all ongoing, and then Molly she starts to feel really shitty. She's like, I kind of think I'm being poisoned. She, remember, had diabetes, and at the time, she was receiving her insulin injections from a couple of doctors. One of the doctors who had helped uh, get that, that life insurance policy for William Hale, and uh, those, uh, those two same doctors also performed the autopsy on Anna. Weird. These doctors are 
yeah, looking looking less and less uh, up and on the up and up as we go. So Tom White makes sure she gets to a hospital, and as soon as they no longer have access to her, those those two horrible doctors, she starts improving. That's so strange. That's shocking. Odd how that happened. It's right. She, I bet she's allergic to lab coats. <laughs> <laughs> that must be it. And stethoscopes, too. It's compounded. Mm-hmm. Downright inexplicable. At this point, White and his agents have heard and seen enough that they feel comfortable arresting William Hale and Ernest Burkhart. And specifically, they're charging them with the Smith case, the house explosion. And that is on January 4th, 1926. I do think that part of it is that they're just they see Molly's case happening and, and her being potentially poisoned. And they're like, we, we kind of got to go with what we have or else they're just going to keep killing people. <laughs> so now Hale is he's keeping mom. But Burkhart, they're like, I think I think he might be the weak link here. So they get a jailhouse snitch. To tell Burkhart, you know, hey, by the way, uh, I blabbed to the agents about you. So just so you know, they know everything I know. And then Burkhart just pretty much opens up after that. He gets real chatty. He says, okay, yes, I arranged the explosion at the Smith's house under the direction of Hale. And I also know that Hale got a bootlegger named John Ramsey to shoot Roan. And so he's he's handing over Hale, he's handing over Ramsey. And so yes, all of this had happened sort of for some of it for the the, the chain of headrights, essentially. Uh, kill the unmarried sisters first. Their headrights will go to their mother, kill their mother, and then all those headrights will go to uh, Molly and then kill. You know, eventually, as they were trying to do, kill Molly, and then all of those headrights go to Ernest Burkhart, who can then, you know, hand some over to Hale or just give him some money, whatever. At this point, the dominoes start falling. They bring in Ramsey, he spills, and he's really also, you know, in addition to being a murderer, he's also incredibly racist. I uh, really gets at the the cold, uh, disgusting truths of the the area and the era. One of his quotes is, "White people in Oklahoma thought no more of killing an Indian than they did in 1724." Wow! Damn! Yeah! Damn! Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hale is still not talking, despite everybody else spilling. And even with the, essentially the confession from Ernest Burkhart, there's a big question of can they actually get a conviction? Because of course, it's going to be a white jury. And we're talking about convicting a white man for killing Native Americans. And this white man also has a lot of wealth. He has a lot of influence. He basically is, is very insulated. They're like, all right, let's try to get this in federal court because then it, we might have a little bit of a better shot. At first, they have no choice but to hold it in state court. The, the federal level is like, nah, not here. They get 
Anna Brown's killer to make a statement. This is Kelsey Morrison. He said at the time, his statement was, uh, we got her good and drunk. And then we took her out into the wild, basically gave her some booze, left her there to drink. A couple hours later, we came back, we shot her. Meanwhile, they get to Burkhart. The defense, Hale's defense gets to Burkhart and he recants his confession on the stand with Hale just grinning from ear to ear the entire time. Smug bastard. He's proud of it. He's He is proud of it. He really is. And he honestly, he thinks he's going to get away with it. Then, Ernest Burkhart and Molly's daughter, who is four years old, died very suddenly during the trial. And that turned Burkhart right around again. He's back on the prosecution side. He changed his plea to guilty. And he, uh, I don't know if there's even a word for it when you, you unrecant your confession or do you reconfess? Do you re-recant or is it just canting? Can it be all of them? Sure. Yes, he did all of those things. So yes, he pleads guilty, says everything I said before is true, even though I also said it wasn't true, but now it's true. And so he ends up with a life sentence. Then the federal government comes back and they're like, actually, you can do the trial in federal court. Sure, it's allowed. So Burkhart has to take the stand then. And he says, okay, so usually Hale liked to do the job with poisoned moonshine. But he actually wanted to make Roan's murder look like a suicide. But the hitman messed it up by shooting him in the back of the head. Whoopsies. Which is... Yeah, a little a, a little not suicidy as far as that's concerned. And there's also there's tons of people who testify for the prosecution that a lot of them are like, yeah, Hale talked to me about the murders or he straight out asked me to commit a murder. And yes, this is all true. The defense is basically Here like we okay, have well, Hale's Craigslist ad where he's asking for people to murder. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. It was practically that. So the defense is like, what should we use as a strategy? What do we have at our disposal? Oh, we have a really rich man. Okay, really rich man. Pay a bunch of people to perjure themselves. And Hale does it. So a whole bunch of people come on the stand and lie uh, and get some money for it. Sure enough, first trial is a hung jury after five days of deliberation. They're split right down the middle, and I'm sure it, and it later became known that at least some of the people who were on the not guilty side of that divide had a little bit fatter pockets when they walked out. Good investments? I mean, spreading that money all over. You know, he's just he's just trying to boost the economy, mm. you know? You got you to gotta give some money to the people to perjure themselves. You got to give some money to the jurors. And they will go out and they will spend that money in the community. And then small business owners, they will benefit, you know. And then there's more more money in taxes. And no, no, no. And everyone no. knows this is unethical stimulus checks. Yes. Maybe that's the subtitle. Mm. I'm all about the subtitle today. <laughs> <laughs> so... Then there is the second trial. This is, all right, so Hale and Ramsey are on trial. Burkhart takes the, star, the stand again. 
Now, when the uh, defense has him up there on cross-examination, they have him list all of Molly's family that he either killed or helped kill, and in addition, some others who had died suspiciously. And then Hale's attorney asks him, quote, has your wife now any surviving relatives outside of the two children she has by you? Burkhart says, she has not. He basically either killed or helped to kill all of her family. And she did the right thing and divorced the crap out of him. Well, yeah. Good. Yes. Uh, she would actually go on to remarry in 1928. And uh, three years later, she was able to get sort of the, the incompetency declaration reversed so that she could actually do whatever she wanted with her money without having to deal with some white guardian. Good. Yes. In this case, there is only one day of deliberation, and the jury comes back with a guilty verdict, which Hale and Ramsey were not ready for. They thought it was going to go a little bit differently. They are sentenced to life, each of them. They end up in Leavenworth. And in just a little while after they get to Leavenworth, there's a new warden, Tom White. Oh, no. <laughs> he he did say that he insisted they not be treated any differently than any other prisoner. But I like to think differently. I like to just say, like, maybe he's lying, too. <laughs> Everyone's going to say that. <laughs> Extra butt rapings all around. They did. Uh, Hale's job uh, in prison was a pig farmer. So he had to deal with a lot of shit. So. Uh. Literally. <laughs> so, uh, Kelsey Morrison, remember, uh, is on a separate trial for the murder of Anna. And at that point, another version of her death comes out that's a little bit more detailed um, and rough. Uh, his story is that she was, or the story that comes out, I can't remember if it came from his mouth or somebody else's. Anna was having sex with Brian Burkhart. And Kelsey Morrison knocked her out and then dragged her off and shot her. There is a guilty verdict here, and he receives a life sentence. In 1937, Molly died at just the age of 50. And that same year, I, I honestly hope after she died, so she didn't have to see this happen. But I don't know the exact dates. Burkhart was released from prison after serving about 10 years he, he did end up back there it's you know <laughs> you can check out anytime you want well you can't but you also can never leave and so he commits a robbery and is in prison again and then after that he is out in 1959 and in 1965 the governor of oklahoma gives him a full pardon I, I just, uh, utter bullshit, I believe, would be the words for that. that, that that's not enough. Yeah, that's what I was going for. Yeah. yeah. A bullshit lasagna. There it is. A bullshit lasagna, yes. And add another layer onto this bullshit lasagna. Ramsey and Hale, by 1947, are out on parole. They had served less than 20 years. 
Hale died at 87. John Ramsey is a pretty popular name, and none of the articles had details on his life or death after being paroled. And I couldn't dig through the many John Ramseys in Oklahoma in <laughs> that period of time. So I do not know when he died, but I think we can trust he's probably dead by now. Or he's telling you how to spend your money. <laughs> or I think that. that's Dave yes. Ramsey. <laughs> so Hale uh over the, the the time since was found to be tied to over 20 murders in some way or another and there were other unsolved murders that he might not have been involved with but we will we'll never really know because once they got the convictions for Hale, Morrison, Ramsey and Burkhart, Hoover was like, "All right, we're done. Case closed. Washing my hands, walking away." And uh, they did actually, well, no, he didn't walk away without handing a $20,000 bill over to the Osage community uh, in, to pay the Bureau for their investigative services. That's uh, $300,000 today. Yeah, they had to pay for what little justice they were given. Yeah, exactly. The uh, one. Go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, this is my last, my last bit. The one tiny bit of justice that we do have, the the fact that someone actually did something right somewhere. And well, obviously that was a mistake. <laughs> Congress actually at some point stepped in and a law was passed that head rights belonging to an Osage with more than half blood half Osage blood could not be passed to a non Osage. So that would stop the process of white people coming in and trying to get these head rights because as long as the, and, and a member of the Osage community was more than half blood, it, it was impossible. So at least there's that. They kind of fixed it a little, I guess. <laughs> oh, it was still a lot of murdering and a lot of terrorizing a, a, a tiny community. So, so that's what I have. And uh, you guys have anything else? I no, believe... that about covers it. Yeah, I'm good to go. There is uh, the the inspiration for this. Uh, this was an amber pick. Was the movie that is uh, in the works right now? Yeah, it's uh, Scorsese and De Niro are teaming up. Uh, I believe they're going to start filming next year. And based on the book, I believe it's uh, Killers of the White Flower Moon by one of my sources, David Grant. Yep, correct. So, so yeah, so there is that to look forward to. Maybe when that comes out, we'll watch it and uh, review it over on the Patreon or something. Yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, this was actually a pick from, from my daughter who is writing a paper about it. And she's like, Mom, this is right up your alley. So, uh so. <laughs> <laughs> really what she did was get you to do her research mm. no no she, actually most of the sources i use she can't use um because it, it has to come from like her j store or whatever um, okay so yeah most of the sources that i use she couldn't use anyway but she was just interested in it and she she thought it was a, a good pick for us to go ahead and, and take apart a little bit Mom, we'll tell it's her got least... everything. Murder, black and white photos. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. It's really all we need. Tell her we said thanks for the suggestion. And uh, yeah, it was it was definitely fascinating to read about and, and to learn about. I didn't, I knew that 
you know, it was something involving what would become the FBI and, and something involving a bunch of murders because I've had uh, Killers of the White Flower Moon on my uh, list. Uh, it's actually on our, I believe it's probably on our Amazon uh, old-timey crimey list uh, for forever, but the, the the price just never quite goes down enough for me to 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 jump. So, uh, so yeah, but but yeah, this was definitely really really fascinating uh, to to learn about. So, uh, if you liked that, but you're not the Patreon type, you know, you don't want to start what could be a long-term relationship, you just want to leave a buck or two on the nightstand, you can do that by emailing, nope, not emailing us, using our email address at PayPal, that is oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. You can also email us there if you want to, you know, just send an email to oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com and, uh, you know, case suggestions or, or anything like that, we are always open for. There's also our also our social media over on Twitter and Facebook. Scott is posting lots of media images and such related to each case. So go over there to take a look. We also have merchandise at oldtimeycrimey.redbubble.com. You can get t-shirts, you can get shower curtains, you can get laptop sleeves. If you, just about if you can think of it, you can get it. And... Uh, other shows, don't forget, uh, Short Story Short Podcast uh, is uh, me and our, our friend of the show, Chris Garcia, talking about short stories and Detectives by the Decade, where, uh, you know, forensic stuff, time, you know, it's it's a thing. And uh, Scott and Amber do some voice work, so you can hear them uh, reading reading quotes from from famous personages, although we're really, we're really working on getting more ladies uh, but they, I'm still in the time period where they don't like letting ladies talk. So uh, Amber doesn't Our get to participate don't as much. <laughs> exactly. I miss those days. <laughs> Too bad. You're going to lose your pants as soon as you're off this call. Uh, she's asleep. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and also rate, review, subscribe. You know, you've heard it on a million podcasts and tell your friends because if you like us, they'll probably like us. Um, so yeah, there's all that. And that's all of my bullshit. So, uh, what are we doing this week, guys? I am, uh, just working. I'm so sick of working. Could, we need more Patreon supporters so I can stop that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I am house hunting. So, uh, we'll see Ooh. how that goes. Are you trying to Very stick to the Johnstown exciting. area? Uh, yes, I, I have a, a school district in mind, and uh, unfortunately, just not a whole lot of houses right now, but hopefully this weekend there's a couple more, and we can uh, start looking around. Well, I mean, with enough accidents, there'll be plenty. Ooh. Hmm. Did I say that <laughs> out loud? I did. No. I, I, was actually, I was actually looking at a different house. Uh, whenever I was working where Amber works and I was looking at a different house than the one I was living in at the time I wasn't married. I wasn't dating anyone. I was looking at downsizing and I went up. I, I kind of looked at this house from the road and I thought, wow, I really like this. If I could get my house sold, I could put a down payment on this. And then, uh, and then, uh, I, like I showed it to some friends at work and then, there was a murder-suicide that happened there, and they took it off the market. So that shit doesn't always work. Yeah, no, if it's a crime scene, yeah. um, they, like, well, one, I don't think they can sell it right away until after everything's been solved, case shut, all that. Um, and then I 
believe now i thought i saw something that realtors actually have to tell you if somebody died there now i don't care i, th I thought i was going to get it for cheap and they just went nope <laughs> nope now it's off the market you're not going to move at all fuck this hmm i am uh working and uh, i finished a, a big cross-stitch project so i'm trying to get another one started but it's a little complex it's on sheer fabric it's more embroidery. It's not cross stitch, but so I have to figure out like you have the back of every cross stitch, which is an absolute nightmare mess because you have all the knots and everything where you pull the thread through, but you can't do that with sheer fabric everywhere. You can only do it like behind where you've stitched. So I'm trying to figure out how the hell you do that when you haven't stitched yet. <laughs> so it's a whole thing. So I'll figure it out. But yeah. And, uh, Last week, I read a little, I think it was last week, I read a little thing from a, a, one of the old-timey newspapers uh, to finish off the show. This week, I have something a little different. Uh, I've been reading that biography of, of Queen Victoria that I told you guys about. I'll tell you the title and author in a minute when I get off my notes screen, because I did highlight this particular section because I found it delightful. The top hat was now considered the mark of a gentleman, even though the first man to sport one in public 40 years earlier was arrested on the grounds that it had, quote, a shiny luster calculated to alarm timid people, end quote. Four women had fainted upon seeing it, and pedestrians had booed. Everybody thought it was a big black cock on his head. <laughs> Somebody fainted when they saw a hat? What the fuck is wrong with people? Fucking hell. Four women fainted, and then other people booed over a hat. Wow. Yeah, we Hard think we're sense. sensitive today. Shit. Yeah, jeez, okay. This was from Victoria the Queen by Julia Baird. I'm really enjoying it. It's a great biography, and I actually was able to pull a little bit from this about uh, Tom Thumb for Aunt, uh, Amber's old tiny criming over on the Patreon, so I was pretty proud that I was able to pull out some knowledge. I was like, oh, this came in handy. Oh, my God. Me reading a historical biography actually came in handy for once. Well, we do a historical podcast. So, I mean, it's bound to cross. <laughs> Generally, by the time it might come in handy, I'll have forgotten the particulars and, and won't. Yeah, I won't remember it specifically enough to bring it up or I'll bring it up and I'll be like, so I think it was something like this or maybe it was that. And then I'd realize I should just shut up. So. So speaking of me shutting up, thank you for listening to our diabolically filthy words. And we really appreciate you listening. And we'll see you next week with more historical true crime. Bye. 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 My sources this week are Fresh Air on NPR, John D. May and Corey Bone on the Oklahoma Historical Society, David Grant on The New Yorker. The Osage Journal, Fort Worth, Record Telegram, and Pulsa World via newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. Uh, FBI.gov, as well as the Osage Indian Murders Vault on FBI.gov. The Osage Nation, Christopher Klein on history.com. And Douglas Olinder on famoustrials.com. Buckle up, I got a ton here. I have allthatsinteresting.com, the ever-popular wikipedia.org, npr.org, fbi.gov, okhistory.org, pbs.org, murderpedia.org, and vault.fbi.gov. Damn, y'all. I have All That's Interesting.com by Gina DeMiro, FamousTrials.com, History.com by Christopher Klein, and FBI.gov. Mm -hmm.